Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everybody, and welcome to New Books in Catholic Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. This channel and episode were created in collaboration with the American Catholic Historical Association, a conference of scholars, archivists, and teachers of Catholic studies. My name is Allison Isidore, and I'm a host of the channel. Today, we'll be talking to Maggie Skull, a historian of modern Britain and Ireland. Maggie is the author of The Catholic Church in Northern Ireland Troubles from 1968 to 1998, published by Oxford University Press in 2019. The book was the winner of the British Association of Irish Studies in 2020. This thoroughly researched book offers fresh insight into the Northern Irish Troubles and the changing role of the Catholic Church in it. She's not only looking at the troubles from a religious point of view, but rather she looks through several different lenses, which changes our understanding of the troubles. Using a wide range of materials, including interviews with some of the key figures in the church and politics, this sheds new light on the history of the troubles. Maggie, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having me, Allison. I appreciate it. Yeah. I was wondering if you could begin this interview by telling us a bit about yourself. Absolutely. So I grew up in Ohio before moving to Boston to attend my undergraduate degree at Boston University, where I pursued a Bachelor of Arts in European History with a minor in Women, Gender, and Sexuality Studies. And from there, I wanted to pursue my master's, but I also wanted to move abroad. So I moved to London in 2012 to do a master's in modern history at King's College London. And I liked it so much, I decided to stay at King's to pursue my PhD. And the book we're going to chat about today was actually originally inspired by my master's thesis on the role of the Catholic Church and the hunger strikes in Longkesh May's prison in 1980 and 1981. I then decided to expand this topic into a PhD that examined the Catholic Church's role in the conflict between 1968 and 1994 before adding another chapter, as we tend to do, for the book project that came out in 2019 with Oxford University Press. So a lot of people always ask me, are you from an Irish family background yourself? I believe there are some long ago ancestors, um, many generations, but I never grew up as an Irish American, which I think is really significant. I I came to this conflict, or I came to studying this conflict because I was interested in the religious element of it. I was interested in the fact that so many scholars of the conflict have kind of left the religion and religious institutions out of their study of the conflict. And I really wanted to bring that back in as someone that was interested in thinking about religious institutions myself. Yeah, and you kind of hit on it there, what brought you into this project. But I was wondering if you'd tell us how you came into this particular project. How did you become interested in the Northern Irish Troubles? And why did you want to write about the Catholic Church's influence. You kind of talked about it there for a sec. Yeah. So interestingly, I did this BA in European history at Boston University. Boston, large Irish diaspora, 
pretty large influence by the Irish population, maybe not in the history department at my college. And despite taking many courses on modern British history, on um, thinking about Britain in the 20th century, the troubles were always very much glossed over. It was something that we touched mildly on, but did not focus our class sessions on. When I moved to London to do my master's in 2012 at King's, I had an entirely different subject in mind for what I wanted to write my master's dissertation on. And it had nothing to do with the conflict in Ireland. It had nothing really to do with Ireland in general. But I was persuaded to take a course, an MA course, during the sort of pitch on the very first day with Professor Ian McBride on the provisional IRA and the conflict in Northern Ireland. Now, I cannot tell you enough, Professor Ian McBride is one of the top scholars in the history of the Troubles, full stop. I mean, he is incredible. So the fact that I stumbled across this opportunity is a twist of fate, if you will. Um, And as we were reading the texts for our class, I just kept being surprised over and over again when scholarly texts would just mention religion or mention religious institutions and religious actors within them, but fail to analyze these individuals or these institutions as subjects themselves. So for example, you might be reading something where a British government official is inviting a bishop to give his thoughts on the current situation in Ireland in the 1980s. They're having them to the Northern Ireland office. And you know, that's just taken as fact when you're thinking about it and saying, wait, in other conflict societies, I don't know if religious actors or a bishop is being consulted for their viewpoint in as late into the 1980s. And this isn't being mentioned. This isn't being discussed as unique. This isn't being analyzed. And I wanted to kind of push back on that. I wanted to say, why? Why is it just such a small subsection of people in scholarship in Northern Ireland that are thinking about religion and religious institutions? For some reason, I can kind of see why now as someone that's a scholar of this conflict myself, a much deeper level. So many people, when they think about the conflict in Northern Ireland, if they don't know about it, if they're from outside the island of Ireland, think, okay, the conflict's about Catholics and Protestants fighting each other. And you say, no, 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 no. It's so much more nuanced than that. Use them as the terms Catholic and Protestant as ethnic identifier. So perhaps scholars that were writing during the conflict and even this period after don't want to engage with religion or religious institutions because they don't believe the conflict is actually about that. They know the conflict's not actually mainly about that. So they tried to almost ignore that those are the descriptors. And I just kept digging away at this MA thesis and it pursued me to do a master's and or pursued me to do my MA dissertation in this, pursued me to continue on this road for a PhD and fall down the rabbit hole. And interestingly, the main people that are scholars on religion and religious institutions in Northern Ireland are not currently based in Northern Ireland or are not from Northern Ireland themselves. A lot of them are bringing in perspectives from outside. Maybe they have Irish heritage, but they are living in Britain. Maybe they're from the US, from a different community. But it seems very interesting that that's the subsection of that field is a lot of people that are working on Northern Ireland religion and religious institutions don't either live in Northern Ireland today or are not from there originally. So what perspective are they bringing to the conflict from outside of it? I was wondering if you could tell our listeners who might not be familiar with the Troubles and all its complexities, can you tell us a little bit about it? (laughs) I know that's kind of a hard question or might be a hard answer to do because this is a 30-year conflict, right? But a lot of people who are looking at this from the outside might only know the conflict from the very start or the very end with pop culture like The Dairy Girls or the recent movie Belfast, which looks at the very start of the conflict. 
all right, how long do you have? No, I mean, this is a tricky question and you could spend entire series of podcasts breaking this down. And what I think the most interesting part for me is I'm going to give you what I believe is a factual narrative of the conflict, but somebody else could listen to this and say, that's not true at all. This is what happened. And it's very difficult to lay down hard facts because scholars and not even to scholars, many people don't agree on those facts. We can't even really fundamentally agree on the specific start date of the conflict, let alone all of the details in between. But I will try for those of you who are listening, who disagree with me, get in touch. We can chat about this more. But I think this happens in any conflict society, right? When you're discussing a conflict society and discussing the narrative of it, people are going to disagree with the choices you make in saying that narrative. So starting with that caveat, I would say that most scholars agree the conflict began in the late 1960s when civil rights protesters in Northern Ireland, inspired by the civil rights protests that were happening in the USA, began organizing their own marches and protests in Northern Ireland. However, these protests did turn violent when the predominantly Protestant police force began to attack the protesters. And by August 1969, the British government called in the British army to help maintain the peace on the streets. So this period of the British army coming in had a very small, relatively small period of calm. It was short-lived and a 30-year conflict continued until the signing of the Belfast or Good Friday Agreement or Peace Accord, which helped to create peace in 1998. To say that peace was finally totally achieved in 1998 is not entirely accurate because there has been violence since that period. There was the Omaha bombing in 1998, one of the deadliest bombings of the entire conflict by those who disagreed with the peace agreement, the Good Friday Agreement. Violence still exists in Northern Ireland today on a significantly lower level by what some people call so-called dissident Republican paramilitaries, which are still calling for United Ireland by any means necessary. And with Brexit, we're seeing a lot of these conversations again with some loyalists are threatening violence if the Northern Ireland Protocol, which has been introduced as part of Brexit measures, continues. Uh, These loyalists are arguing that Northern Ireland is set apart from the rest of the UK because of the Northern Ireland Protocol. It's complicated to say the least. What I would recommend is for anyone who'd like to read more on the conflict, our book is the book by David McKittrick and David McVeigh. It's excellent. It's called Making Sense of the Troubles. The other tome that I always have my students read in my classes is Richard English's Superb Armed Struggle. These are just two works that I would say if you're interested in thinking about the history, the broader history of the troubles, I would really recommend that you go check out. There have been others that have been published more recently, but I would still say these are the most accessible texts that are on the market. So a bit of a cop-out answer from me. I am going to admit to that, but you know, the fact that we can't agree on specific start dates or that we can't agree on how events have turned is difficult. It makes it difficult to share this narrative with people from outside of it because inherently you have to look for bias in everyone's position. Every single person has bias. We all bring our own perspective to the conflict, which is what I really try to analyze in my book when thinking about these specific religious actors. Right. Yeah. And looking at it from not just a Protestant or Catholic point of view is, I think, an important way of looking at the troubles, which you do fantastically. Some historians are looking at the troubles from the perspectives of either class, gender, or religion. But, you know, you make the argument that The troubles need to be examined through several different lenses, especially when it comes to the institution that is the Irish Catholic Church. So why is it important to look at this interplay between class, education, religion, ethnicity, and even gender roles? How does that change the historical narrative that has been told before? 
That's a great question. I think at the time, so many people and scholars were writing on the troubles in Northern Ireland. They were trying to say, to put forward what form of identity or what part of someone's identity caused the conflict and sustained the conflict because they were writing when the conflict was still ongoing. So it was trying to understand, okay, what's the predominant feature? But now I think we all recognize that we are our identities are made up of several parts of ourselves. We are defined by our race, our ethnicity, our, our religion or non-religion, our gender, our sexual orientation. We are defined by multiple characteristics. So to say that one or the other might outweigh the other is not really helpful for us when we're thinking about our own lives. And so what I really wanted to do with this for this book is think about many different aspects of individual religious actors' lives. So not just where they grew up, where were they educated? What were the outside connections or networks that they were a part of? What was the socioeconomic background that they came from? I think most interestingly, we can use the study of the liberation theology in this book. So we often had a priest like Father Joe McVeigh or Father Des Wilson who became exposed to liberation theology through their networks. And those networks could be the family and friends they had that were missionaries in other countries where these ideas were being developed, or priests like uh, Monsignor Raymond Murray, who had networks all around Europe. And what I found was really fascinating is, okay, these priests started the conflict with their own networks, and these religious sisters started the conflict with their own networks. But, but because the conflict became such a widely discussed issue, such a large impact around the world, these priests, these bishops, these religious sisters began to be invited to create other networks. So they'd have people coming to ask them about their own experiences, which would further influence their viewpoint, right? They wouldn't just engage with people in their own community, in their own area. They would engage with people all over the world because of the conflict. And all of this is weighing on them. All of this is changing and influencing how they are interacting in the conflict. And not just who they are fundamentally as people is being changed, but their words are being changed, their actions are being changed. So we have to look at all of these different influences on who we are as individuals. And that explains why when we have something because like an institutional Irish Catholic church, that we have differing response within the institutional church because we have differing individuals within it. No one sort of goes to some sort of factory and gets labeled, okay, you all have the same idea, even if they all go to the same seminary, right? Because they come from these different backgrounds. They have these different experiences. And that's what I really tried to, to highlight in the book is that, yes, it's an institution, but institutions are made up of individuals that will often have their own perspectives to bring in. Yeah, and that leads us beautifully to our next question. You start the book off, you start the troubles starting in 1968. The clergy were at the forefront of some of these significant civil rights protests. But as the troubles progress, things start to change. How did the involvement of the clergy and the Irish church hierarchy change as the conflict continues for 30 years? That's a great question. And this is what I really kind of end my first significant content chapter with is the Catholic Church. There were priests and religious sisters that were on these civil rights marches that were helping to minister to people on these marches that were very much at the forefront. Um, Bloody Sunday, the day that the British Army um, Parachute Regiment shot and killed 13 unarmed civilians with a 14th person who later died of their injuries. There were at least seven priests on the ground that day. They had been there to help with the march. The march had, you know, the March of Bloody Sunday of the civil rights protesters had 10 to 15,000 people in attendance, but there were still seven to eight priests on the ground there to give support. They didn't know it was going to turn violence that day, but some of the most iconic images of the conflict are of priests trying to wave white handkerchiefs to get British Army soldiers to stop shooting at 
those who were injured on the ground. So it's really significant that they were there. However, I argue in the book, Bloody Sunday saw a massive rise in recruitment for Republican organizations because people just thought no one's going to protect us. The British army was brought in to protect us. They won't. And you saw a large increase in recruitment for Republican paramilitary organizations like the IRA or the provisional IRA at that time. So what happened was, is that as the IRA, provisional IRA began to fight back, as there were attacks like Bloody Friday, where they had many bombings in the Belfast City Center in July 1972, the idea that all Catholics were victims began to fade away from the wider sort of understanding of the conflict, both in and outside the island of Ireland. And you start to see a lot more pressure on Catholic priests, on Catholic religious sisters, on Catholic bishops to denounce Republican paramilitary violence. And for most people, most priests, they just said, okay, we're done. We're not getting involved with this. You know, the provisional IRA would go on to kill more individuals in the conflict than any other group combined. And many priests said, we're distancing ourselves from this. I think it took a lot of courage, though, for those priests that I really highlight in the rest of the book that didn't have to stop their experience of ministry in the conflict, that still went to try and advocate for peace, to try and create opportunities for peaceful dialogue, who were still at the forefront of these events trying to enact change. And that's what's really significant for me is to think about, even if these priests were in the minority, they were still out there saying or doing something. And at the same time, you have their institutional backing in the form of the Irish hierarchy, the Irish Council of Bishops, who are having to deal with the public response of why don't you excommunicate these IRA men? Why don't you not allow them IRA funerals? Why, why, why? Forgetting the cultural context of what it is to be a Catholic, what it is to be in that faith. And interestingly, I had one note of one Irish bishop saying in one of the archival documents that in a letter responding to an individual that wrote to them and to say, why are you not excommunicating IRA men? And this bishop said, because by their actions, they excommunicate themselves. But these are the main issues. So at the same time, while the church is trying to minister to the other population that's not engaged with violence or is impacted by this, they are also publicly being asked to denounce Republican paramilitaries, provisional IRA, constantly while feeling like many in their ministry are still facing discrimination on a day-to-day level. So it's very much multi-layered and it's not as black and white after Bloody Sunday and the recruitment and engagement with the IRA from that point onwards. So the church has to vary its response. And this is where you start to see the fissures that I argue in the church's response. Kind of leading off of that, what I found was really fascinating was these different interpretations of suicide within the church hierarchy, right? The the Vatican considered the deaths due to the 1980 and 1981 hunger strikes suicides, while the Irish church hierarchy doesn't necessarily see it that way. And as you explained, there was this tension between the Irish church hierarchy and the Vatican when it came to these deaths and subsequently the funerals for the Republicans. How did these tensions affect the relationship between the clergy, the Irish hierarchy, and, you know, those involved in the Troubles? That's a great question, Allison. I'd say the biggest fissure on whether hunger striking was a form of suicide wasn't really even between the Vatican and the Irish bishops. It was between the Irish and the English Catholic bishops. And it comes down to this idea of the fact that, okay, yes, it's one holy apostolic church, 
but religion is refracted through a local lens. It's refracted through a local level. And in Ireland, Irish Catholicism looks very different than English Catholicism. It has a very different relationship, the people in Ireland, to their faith than people in England do, despite the fact that you're dealing with many, you're dealing with the same faith, you're dealing with the same religion. Hunger striking is one of the main elements that shows why our faith is localized, why our faith is personalized. So the in the Irish Catholic Church, hunger striking, as I wrote in an article for Irish Political Studies that came out in 2015, is an issue that had divided the church. But historically in Ireland, hunger striking had been seen as a form to raise awareness of someone else's grievance. As early as the fifth century, you had people going to hunger strike on the door of someone that had wronged them. So they would go and they would start hunger striking on their doorstep and saying, okay, you have wronged me. I'm drawing attention to your wrongs that you have to correct this wrong. And everyone around you sees that I am shaming you right now by hunger striking on your doorstep. So this history had long been there. It wasn't new by the time of the 1980 and 1981 hunger strikes. What has changed over time is our understanding of hunger strikes and suicide outside of the island of Ireland. So as early with the deaths of of Terence McSweeney, the Lord Mayor of Cork, who died in 1920, the British government declared that it was suicide. Most of the English Catholic bishops said that this was suicide because he chose to hunger strike to the death, which in their mind was a clear suicide. But the Irish bishops did not choose to do so, did not choose to say that this was hunger strike. They said this is a legitimate form of raising awareness of your grievance. At any time, the British government could have intervened and stopped Terence McSweeney's hunger strike, but they chose not to. And he was, you know, not trying to commit suicide by doing this. He was trying to raise awareness of the wrongs that had been done to him. However, just a few years later, when his sister, Mary McSweeney, she goes on hunger strike, the Irish Catholic Church says to her, this is suicide and we're not going to give you the sacrament anymore. Because they had changed politically what they viewed was appropriate. Well, it's saying, okay, well, Mary McSweeney is supporting a different political view than we support. So let's say it's not, let's say to her that it is suicide and make it seem like she is committing suicide by hunger striking or is trying to commit suicide by hunger striking. So it's a sticky issue. It is not a black and white issue anyway. But by the time we get to the hunger strikes, 1980 and 1981, this issue comes to the forefront because by not calling the Irish hunger strikers that are in Long Cashmere's prison suicide, they're not saying they're committing suicide. Many people from outside the island of Ireland or outside the Irish Catholic community within Ireland are saying, "You're, you're allowing their hunger strikes to go ahead. You're basically giving them the green light that this is fine, that you respect this, that this is okay, that they're not doing anything wrong here. When you have English bishops, English Catholic bishops, or for those outside the Catholic faith around the world saying, no, that is suicide. They're deliberately hunger striking to the death. And it's how we view religion, like I said before, on a local level, because these Irish bishops say, you know, for us, historically, this is not, this is not what we see it as. So it is a tricky situation here, and it is one that brought the English and Welsh Catholic Church into direct conflict with the Irish Catholic Church, with the Vatican almost acting as a mediator. Um, Pope John Paul II sent his papal envoy, Father John McGee, who later became a bishop in Ireland, Father John McGee to Bobby Sands, the lead hunger striker, to basically you know pray with him and to try to see if there's any resolution of the hunger strike before he died. There was not. And then the Vatican kind of removed itself from those conversations about the hunger strike because Pope John Paul II had, had an assassination attempt on his life. Just a a few days, I believe, before Bobby Sands died in May 1981. So there's so many things that are happening here, right? You have uh, politics that are being used at a level that's really intriguing for us. They are being used to reflect what the local politics might be of that area. So if you were an English Catholic bishop and you're having the provisional IRA 
bomb areas in your community, like what would have been happening during a lot of the troubles, you're not going to say, okay, hunger striking is something we've historically known when you haven't known it and that this is fine, it's not suicide. So we have to keep thinking about these major issues that we think, okay, should just be theologically dealt and done with. They're not. And the troubles in Northern Ireland highlights this quite a bit. So it's a very complicated, complex issue. And the Vatican, for the most part of the conflict, stays out of it. And then the hunger strikes is one of the major issues where the Vatican does intervene. And then that intervention is stopped because of the assassination attempt against the Pope's life. Right. Yeah. And keeping with the Vatican for a minute, before reading your book, I hadn't been aware of the Vatican's involvement as you said, as a mediator between, you know, Ireland and the British government, especially when it came to talks with the Prime Minister, Margaret Thatcher. Can you tell our listeners about these mediations and negotiations that the Vatican was a focal point of? Sure. So the 1980 and 1981 hunger strikes didn't just come out of nowhere. They didn't come out of a vacuum. In March 1976, prisoners in Long Cashmere's prison began to protest and something they called the blanket protests because they refused to be recognized as ordinary criminals. They wanted something called special category status, which would allow them to basically be seen as political prisoners because they didn't think their crimes were motivated by ordinary criminal actions. They were motivated because they had a political agenda. When this special category status was removed in March 1976, all of these prisoners then that were convicted after this point had to be entered to the system as ordinary criminals. So what happened was is that they had to wear a prison uniform. They were denied many special privileges. So in March 1976, Kieran Nugent was the first Republican paramilitary to begin something called the blanket protest. And in this blanket protest, he refused to wear the prison uniform. And he instead just wore the prison issued blanket around himself because he said, I'm not a common criminal. I'm not wearing a mandatory prison uniform like anybody else. So this prison protest continued for two years until at some point in 1978, it began known as the no wash or dirty protests because the prisoners said that when they would go to have showers that they would be attacked by the prison guards and then they would have their chamber pots kind of thrown back into them. So what happened was they started throwing their chamber parts out of the prison guards and smearing their excrement on the walls. So you can imagine the smell of this, the stench of this, they're not bathing, they're not complying with prison rules. And this has been going on for many years. So by the time of 1980, the prisoners feel the Pope has just visited in 1979. They were considering a hunger strike then. They chose not to have a hunger strike in 1979 during the Pope's visit. By 1980, the prisoners say, we have to try something else. We can't just keep doing this. We need to get special category status. We need to have our get our five demands that basically effectively give us the special prisoner status. So we will have a hunger strike. The 1980 hunger strike was started as a mass hunger strike. So you have seven people who were then joined by almost 60 by the time the strike ends in December 1980. But they think they get some of the demands and concessions. They really don't. So another hunger strike begins in March 1981, where prisoners start and then another prisoner joins one each week, building the momentum. So you almost constantly have a hunger striker on the brink of death. Throughout this prison protest period, the British government, as we can see in the archival records, felt that Cardinal Tommaso Fee, who was the head of the Irish Catholic Church, was whispering, in their opinion, nationalists or Republican propaganda to the Pope. They were saying, we have to get our own man to speak with the Pope, to speak to the Vatican, to keep the Pope informed of like what we think is appropriate, that these are common criminals that are just going on this protest. They have great prison conditions. This is, they're being fed falsehoods by the Cardinal Tommaso Fee. So they approach Archbishop Bruno Heim, who is the apostolic delegate, 
in London at this time, and they begin to form a relationship with him, this is British government officials. And they're trying to have Archbishop Bruno Heim sort of give the opposition view to Cardinal Tommaso Fee, right? So they're using the apostolic delegate, and they're using the papal nuncio in Dublin, as well as, you know, Cardinal Tommaso Fee, the head of the Irish Catholic Church, to get different sides of the story to the Vatican. And the, it's very interesting to see that this is happening, of that, you know, Margaret Thatcher sort of thinks at some point as she takes over in late 1979, or in the late 1970s, like, okay, this is a relationship we should foster. We should think of what the Vatican's doing. Because the Queen has also had a visit with the Vatican around this time as well, Queen Elizabeth II. So the Vatican's relationships with Britain, this becomes one of the major issues as the Troubles becomes a major issue that they, the British government does start to try and intervene on behalf of the Vatican to give their side of the story. This will change when Cardinal Tommaso Fee suddenly dies of a heart attack in May 1990. And Cardinal Cathal Daly, who will be much more conservative, will be appointed the Irish head of the Irish Catholic Church, and the British government feel like they can talk to him more and that he's not really giving a Republican or nationalist agenda to the Vatican. So we very much see the way that archbishops and bishops are being used to pass on information strategically to the Vatican throughout this period. And it's just very interesting that, you know, Archbishop Bruno Heim had been the apostolic delegate to Britain for quite some time, but hadn't this relationship had not been cultivated with him and the British government until they really needed to see what information he could give on their side of the story, if you will, to the Vatican. It was really interesting to read that you didn't just use archival work for these. You interviewed some of these men. And I was wondering if we can talk about your methodology for a second, breaking away from the history. Some historians are divided on the use of human sources. And so how does this, using both interviews, first-person accounts, and archival work, help tell the story? I always think modern and contemporary historians are blessed with riches of sources, and that I would never say, okay, I'm not going to speak with this person, or I'm not going to look at this archive. Unfortunately, I look at everything, which is why it takes so long to write. But I think it's important to have the first person accounts from anyone that is still, we're still lucky enough to be able to interview and ask for their opinion, because they are there. And yes, memory is an issue. And we have to talk about that. And we have to engage with our sources. But who is to say that there's one type of truth, that the archive should be privileged, or that oral history accounts should be privileged? I think you get to the you know most concrete point of a narrative or most concrete point of an argument when you can have the most variety of sources confirming or conflicting with each other. And then the other part I love is the silence of when there isn't something that we have, whether it's not been released yet or someone's admitting it or not talking about it in their interview, to look for those silences, to look for where sources disagree, where they agree, what's actually happening here is where we get a better narrative. And it's where we have more exciting scholarship. So there are some people I understand that say, okay, well, I'm not going to speak, not going to use oral histories because I don't trust memory or I don't want to speak to anybody that was ever involved in violence. Or some people saying, I'm not going to use British government sources because I feel like they're not going to have everything out there. That's that's not helpful because you should always treat every source as suspect. Every source should be something to be engaged with. And there's no sort of fact, one that's more factual than another one. So for me, it's trying to have that diversity of sources to get at the heart of an issue. And especially when we're in this point of not all of the archives I wanted to use for this book are yet available. So having the ability to go chat with people about their own experiences of the conflict was incredibly important to add missing pieces or to add a different part of that narrative that I couldn't get access to 
yet. And so that's that's a bit of the issue too, is that someday scholars that may revisit this subject might have access to archival sources that weren't yet previously open to me, but the testimony of the individuals that were there at the time won't be available to them. So we have to think about balance and we also have to think about what we owe to those that we're writing about and we owe to our readers. So you demonstrate this dichotomy in the Irish church hierarchy between Cardinal Thomas O'Feach and Cardinal Cowell Daly. Those two were on opposite sides of the spectrum for when it came to church response. Can you tell us about this dichotomy and how it changes the hierarchy when, as you mentioned earlier, you know, uh, Cardinal O'Feach dies? So if you ever wanted the physical embodiment of chalk and cheese, you'd have Cardinal Tomasophy and Cardinal Cahill Daly. Cardinal Cahill Daly was this petite, bird-like, soft-spoken man with a deep understanding of theology, incredibly conservative, a long, long tenure, long life. He had been serving as an Irish bishop for decades, so incredible amounts of experience. And then you have Cardinal Tomas O'Fee who is a larger-than-life character, who you have, there's iconic photos of him smoking a massive cigar, loved life, very gregarious, deep, deep knowledge of Irish history, huge appreciation and knowledge and love of the Irish language as well, and much more sympathetic to a cause of a united Ireland. Did not agree with violence whatsoever, but understood why people wanted a united Ireland and could sympathize with that in a way. So their personalities and who they are are so completely different. And what we see during the tenure when Cardinal Tomas Sophie is still alive and he is the Archbishop of Armagh between 1978 and 1990 with his death, you also have Cardinal Cahill Daly joining in the early 1980s, the, the hierarchy, the Irish hierarchy in the north of Ireland. So before he had been a bishop in the Republic of Ireland, and then he moved to the north in the early 1980s. So You have these two very different people, these two very different voices. And what we kind of see throughout the period of the 1980s and then until Cardinal Tomas' death in 1990 is these two individuals that are carrot and stick almost in their approach to the conflict in Northern Ireland. So you will have Cardinal Tomas sometimes say that he understands why people might vote for Sinn Féin, which was the political party of the provisional IRA. And then you will have Cahill Daly give a radio interview a week later backtracking on his or on Cardinal O'Fee's words, right? Of trying to be like, well, this is what he really meant. Because Cardinal Tomas O'Fee was seen as sort of this figure that could be quite polarizing. And for some members of the Protestant unionist or loyalist community, he could be seen as so supportive of the IRA, the IRA's main bishop. That is why I start the book with this image. It is an image that was quite horrific from a British tabloid at the time, but is basically conflating Cardinal Tommaso Fee as a leading member of the IRA. And I wanted to start the book with that to destroy that understanding, to destroy that viewpoint, but to also show the deep sort of hatred, the deep prejudice many Irish Catholic people felt and experienced on a day-to-day level, and the derision and hatred that was felt for Cardinal Tommaso Fee at some point in some corners, and how misunderstood he could be because he was this larger in life vigor that wasn't as apologetic as people wanted a church leader to be for their political viewpoints. They were saying, you sh- you should not have any comment on this, but at the same time, excommunicate them and don't allow their funerals. So Cardinal Cahill Daly is the one that kind of has to balance and soften and make Cardinal Tommaso Fee's 
opinions more palatable to a wider audience. And so even though he is significantly older in his years and advanced in his years, when Cardinal Tommaso Fee suddenly dies of a heart attack in May 1990, Cardinal Cahill Daly is picked to be the next Archbishop of Armagh, to be the next head of the Irish Catholic Church, because he has that sort of soft-spokenness, that political understanding, that way that he can get along with a lot of people that are on the British government or the establishment side, and he is seen as more palatable maybe to Protestant ministers and unionist, unionist politicians, because he isn't as controversial. So that what we see is in the 1990s when Colonel Cahill Daly takes over is less of the radicalism or less of the understanding shown to people that may feel like they don't see themselves anywhere else in the Catholic Church or that they don't see themselves with this figure that they can't relate to this person that they see is from a different background from them in the form of Cardinal Cahill Daly versus Cardinal Tommaso Fee. And that's an interesting thing to think about the power of personalities in a conflict such as this and how the dynamics and the power structure shifts when one of these individuals dies and then changes how the Irish Catholic Church can respond to the peace process. And it's just one factor that changes during that time. Of course, we have the revelations of clerical child abuse and what's happening with the Magdalene laundries and the mother and baby homes that are finally closing in the 1990s and on the island of Ireland. But you see the change in leadership marks a change in attitude with the death of Cardinal Tommaso Fee. Yeah. Yeah. That was just such a fascinating chapter to read towards the end of the conflict. And we start seeing the shift. But as we wrap things up here, I was wondering, you know, what projects you're currently working on. Are there any lingering questions that remain from your work on the Catholic Church and the Northern Ireland Troubles, or has your work taken a new direction? So I I think no one ever writes the perfect book. There's so many things more that I wish I could go write a second edition right now and add to. There's so many more questions I have. Uh, you know, hopefully someday Oxford, if you're listening, I would love to publish another one. I, I know a paperback is coming out this year as well, the book, which is very exciting because it make it much more affordable. But the book inspired a main thought for me. The number one thing that people would write when you can see the letters that are sent to Irish bishops as well, as from what archival material available from that time, as well as what's sent to English and Welsh Catholic bishops, the number one thing people are writing to these bishops is why, A, do you allow, you know, do you not excommunicate IRA members? And B, why do you allow IRA funerals to go ahead? So I wanted to think, why are funerals such a sticking point here? And funerals during the Troubles in Northern Ireland are a massive issue, not just for the IRA or, you know, Republican paramilitary groups, but funerals for civilian victims of the conflict become major events because politicians will come out to them. They have never met this person or heard of this victim before. They will come to the event, be photographed, you know, shake the hand of the widow or the children and then never be seen again. So it's almost like there's so much attention to the victims because they were, the politicians are using this as like a political maneuver and then forgetting about them. And there are thousands and thousands and thousands of people that are impacted by this, right? If you're thinking about how many people died in the conflict, think of all the people that they loved and they were touched by. Loyalist paramilitaries, you see the same situation happening. They have these very large funerals because they want to see, be seen as military organizations. So they have very ceremonial funerals. And funerals just kept jumping out at me is how religious actors were responding to funerals. So what I'm working on right now, I have the pleasure of receiving Irish Research Council funding to go work with Dr. Neil O'Doherty, Professor Neil O'Doherty at NUI Galway. And I'm now writing up a book that's based on that research 
is about funerals during the conflict in Northern Ireland and how funerals operate in conflict societies more broadly. We can see funerals during apartheid in South Africa have a major impact. We can see funerals during the civil rights movement in the U.S. are incredibly important. And we can see about grieving widows and grieving mothers and grandmothers in the Plaza de Mayo in Argentina during the Dirty War. So funerals have a role to play in conflict societies more broadly. And this is what this book is going to focus in on, are funerals in Northern Ireland and what they reveal to us about a culture around death, about a culture around death rituals and where religious actors also fit into all of this, because they are often the people, not just Catholic religious actors, but Protestant religious actors that are mediating these situations, that are having to care for the loved ones, but maybe having to deal with the press, that are also having to, if the funeral is a paramilitary one, engage with the paramilitaries to see what their agenda is going to be and argue with them at times, or engage with politicians. So funerals are a key sticking point in this conflict. And there's so much more for us to investigate on this. And so what I've done is I've interviewed so far more than 40 religious actors, journalists, Republican and loyalist paramilitaries, British and Irish government officials, civil servants, community activists, to get their perspective on funerals during this conflict in Northern Ireland. And using the archival material as well, never giving up on that, trying to piece together what a history of funerals look like in a conflict where funerals are incredibly important. So yes, Another dark and depressing book from me, but I can't wait to get it out into the hands of people because I think it's just a subject that's not discussed that people really have a lot of opinions and thoughts about, but hasn't really been engaged with in a scholarly way yet. Yeah, that sounds so fascinating. And I can't wait to read more about it when it comes out. Thank you, Maggie, for being on the show and talking to us about your book. Thank you so much for having me, Allison. I am very grateful for the opportunity. Yeah, this has been New Books in Catholic Studies, a New Books Network podcast.